Okay, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We continue. We're going to make a big contribution to our study in Hebrews today. We're going to cover chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse um, 18. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us through your word and through your scripture. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, um, I, I really do, again, pray that this wouldn't be like a class or more knowledge, but knowledge that would, that would lead somewhere. Something objective that would lead to a subjective experience and reality of who you are. I pray for a meeting with you. I pray that you would minister to us as we seek you. Thank you for the relationship that you offer and thank you that you're a person that's here. Would you help us sense that? Would you help us um, sense your presence here? Lord, lead us through. Speak to us, please. Get me out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, chapters 9 and 10, just so you know, are very much the heart of the, of the whole book of Hebrews. And you're going to notice that it's a bloody experience. It's a bloody affair. Uh, he mentions the word blood here so many times. And so we're going to get in this morning to, you know, it's as if the, the, these pages of, your, of the book are stained in blood. Uh, um, so we're going to get into what all that means and the symbology behind blood. And it's very different than what we're used to in our culture. We'll get into all of that. Um, and yet many things we can relate to. Let me just read it. I'm going to read, brace yourselves. I'm going to read chapter 9 through um, verse 18 of chapter 10. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstands and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the, golden, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark had contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that was only once a year, and never, and here's our word, without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing, showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is, an, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. I'm in verse 11 now, if you're following. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that, had now already, that, that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. How did he enter? Well, he did not enter by means of, blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean 
sanctify them so that they are, are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is alive. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law... To all the people, he took blood, the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. A fun experience. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than, than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again and again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he's appeared once, for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Anybody in here waiting for him? Besides me, yeah, a few of you. Um, it's good news. Let's go into chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. For he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstools. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Such a great verse. Um, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where have these been forgiven? Sacri- uh, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Okay, all of that. All of that is talking about the Old Testament tabernacle worship culture or worship system. That's what it's all referring to. For example, in verse 11 of chapter 9, it makes reference to a, quote, tent made with hands, a tabernacle, or if you're not used to that word, tabernacle, you might say. I've heard some people say that. (laughs) Didn't Moses make a tabernacle? And he's talking about the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was built by Moses by the instructions of God in order for people as a meeting place for people to meet with God. It was a a time where people could meet with God just the way it was back in the Garden of Eden where, where mankind lived in the presence of God. It was to recreate that temporarily, but it pointed to something where the redemptive history was going in the future. If you wanted to go and worship uh, God, um, you had to go into this tent made with hands that's called the tabernacle. And if you walked from the entrance to the Holy of Holies, uh, that's the place where the manifest presence of God dwelt. So you came in and then you had to go further in to the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. Um, You would have to pass three altars, three of them. The Hebrew, in Hebrew, the root word for altar um, is to slaughter. That's what it means. It has, the word altar is directly tied to slaughtering something. The first one that you would come in contact was called the brazen altar that was situated inside the courtyard itself as you entered into the tabernacle. Secondly, there was the golden altar of incense in the holy place. And then finally, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, um, that box that was overlaid with gold, the lid that was on top called the mercy seat where the cherubim, the golden cherubim were, that was also considered an altar as well. In other words, my point is, you couldn't just walk in and worship God like you are this morning, you know, with our coffee and just walk on in and have a seat and worship God. It wasn't a thing. You couldn't do it. The tabernacle of the Lord was not a house of worship that you just walked into and took your seat and talked with some friends and then began to worship. Nobody could just go in, is my point. Think of that. I'm trying to transport you there. You couldn't just go in. Um, You couldn't approach God without, without blood. You couldn't get in without blood. You couldn't get anywhere near God without some kind of pain, suffering, death, blood. And then chapter 10 tells us that they had to do this over and over and over and over and over again. Just imagine 
all the blood and suffering that was woven into their culture, to the way they thought from when they were kids. Can you imagine Elodie and Noble and your, your kiddos growing up seeing animals die on a regular basis? All the blood, hearing the screams, watching the life go out of there. I mean, you know, it's a traumatic experience. If, any, if anybody's ever had a pet die, you know how heart-wrenching that is. This was part of how, this was their entrance to God. They had to watch something innocent, harmless, helpless die. And that's what it was like. And this is the theme of this section. The theme of this section is blood. To worship God, there was a lot of death. There was a lot of suffering. There was pain, anguish, and it was cyclical. It just kept going on and on and on. A sacrifice to get to God. Worshiping God meant pain. It was, that was, in their mind, when they heard the word worship, they also had to have thought, just automatically, pain, blood, suffering, death. And this, of course, I'm trying to describe this to you because this is a foreign concept for us. This is really, we're not used to this level of Blood, and it makes us very uneasy and maybe even offended a little bit. This is probably one of the reasons why we're, uh, we're glad that this Christianity isn't so much like ancient Judaism in this way. When we um, hear things like this, we hear that God requires blood for us to come to him. When we hear that idea, um, it sounds offensive. It sounds disgusting. It sounds obscene. It sounds primitive that we have to offer blood to appease something about, about God, to appease his wrath. I mean, it sounds pretty archaic, doesn't it? The world is all, I mean, you know, we might say, well, the world is already filled with enough violence as it is and bloodshed. Good night. We need a religion that's peaceful. <laughs> we, that's the order of the day. We need a religion that's loving and totally accepting, a religion that will not promote violence but love and acceptance to all. That's what we need. So when we come up with sections like this in the Bible, we get a little um, uneasy. A lot of churches these days, to be frank, will not teach on things like this anymore because um, they're very aware of the culture's reaction to it. Okay, And yet, at the same time, this section, uh, the book of Hebrews in this section, says that there's something really profound behind the concept of blood. That, we, that's, that we're missing if we don't get into it. Um, that we're not experiencing the fullness of God unless we really understand this concept of the Bible's theology when it comes to salvation and a relationship with God. There's something powerful for us to grasp when it comes to the ideas of blood. So we're going to look at three, we're, we're look at three things. Um, blood points to, in the Bible, blood points to one, the ultimate problem with mankind. The ultimate problem with the world. Blood alludes to that and points to that, according to the Bible, okay? Secondly, blood also tells us about um, the one and only answer to that problem, okay? Simultaneously, in one symbol, blood has some negative connotations, but also has some very positive connotations all wrapped up in one symbol, okay? And we'll get into that. And thirdly, the Bible would say that blood is the only thing that can change you. Blood is the only thing that can improve you. Blood is the only thing that can uh, make you better than what you are today. Okay, so that's what we're going to get into. 
What are some ideas behind blood? Um, in ancient times, blood was rife with, with symbolic meaning. In that culture, blood was filled with symbology. For one thing, blood means something is desperately wrong. We get that, right? Uh, you're walking down the street in our city and you see uh, a blood stain on the pavement and maybe some police tape around that spot, you immediately know something went wrong there, <laughs> right? Blood outside of the body usually means something's not right. Something went wrong. Um, it symbolizes brokenness. It symbolizes something not functioning right, not functioning correctly. But blood was also synonymous with guilt to an ancient person. It's... Um, there are many ancient writings, as a matter of fact, other than the Bible, where blood is synonymous of guilt. It, uh, in all the cultures surrounding Israel in the ancient Near East, blood was, was typically uh, a corollary of, of blood was, uh, was guilt. Um, you, and, and we understand that too, don't we? Uh, what are some expressions that we have? Um, your, or, or this blood be on your own hands, right? What are we saying there? We're saying you're guilty. You're culpable, right? Um, is there another one that we use? Uh, you have your blood on your your blood be on your own head. Those types of things. You're guilty. Um, also, thirdly, blood stains. It's indelible. It's hard to get it out, isn't it? It's very difficult. So all this makes for some really powerful imagery when you consider what all of that what all of that means. Why all the blood? We could say. Why couldn't you just draw near to God with all of these sacrifices and with all this blood? Well, well, first of all, it was your way of learning the serious nature of what's wrong with this world. It was the way God chose to show people the seriousness of sin and what's going on with the world. When you saw all this blood being shed and an innocent animal dying, there was no way to trivialize the deep problems of the world. You saw the cost. You felt it. Um, in other words, your sin is probably more serious than you think. Okay? That's, one, that's a message from the Bible that comes from this image of blood. Your sin, your problems are probably more serious than you think. It's probably worse than what you think. It's not... An, <laughs> The problems with our world, the Bible would say it's not going to take more education or better jobs or innovation. It's not going to take social change won't do it or ending war or having nuclear wep- a nuclear weapon-free society. It's not climate change. As wonderful and as helpful as all those things are, it's not to poo-poo those things, but it's to say it's even more serious than that. You're still... When you, when you say those things will solve the problem, that's still a reductionist view according to the Bible. That's still way too simple. It's more serious than all of that and it's gonna take more than all of that to do something about it. Secondly, the blood pointed to guilt, to our guilt. Yes, the world is a terrible place. Yes, it's broken. Yes, there are wars and abuse and violence and selfishness. And blood tells us that you and that I am a part of that. I am complicit in the problem of this world. Whether you're on the blue side of the line or the Black Lives Matter side of the line, wherever you're at, we're all part 
of the problem, the Bible would say. There's that great song, everyone's wondering why the world, how the world could get this way. If God is good, how could there be, uh, how's the words go? I should have written it down. It's not the age-old mystery we've made it out to be. Yeah, if there's a problem with the world, the problem with the world is me. <laughs> and then later in the song it says, the sooner you can sing along, the sooner you can sing the song, the happier you'll be. Yeah, the problem with the world is me. Blood points to that we're guilty. We're part of all of this. And finally, blood stains. There's something indelible about our failure, isn't there? So if you put all of this together, you put this message together, blood, is, it, blood says that there's something seriously wrong, there's guilt, and we're a part of the problem, and we can't seem to get rid of it. That's, if you were to put the symbology of blood together, that's, a, that's kind of the... the um, the poster line for the world today. There's something seriously wrong. I'm a part of it, and I can't seem to stop. I can't seem to get rid of it. That's what it all means. How do we get rid of our guilt? It's all in an effort to get rid of our guilt. And the text points to the deeper meaning of all of this when it starts using the word in verse 9, conscience. Really important word, conscience. Um, there is no there is no book in the New Testament that uses this word more than the book of Hebrews. Look at verse 9. He says, This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifice is being offered, that's the blood, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. The text is telling us that one of the most profound problems with mankind is that we don't have peace within our own self within our own conscience. Saying that is part of the human experience. We don't have peace, and nobody does. That's why verse 14 tells us that they had to keep shedding blood. This is how this all goes together. The reason they had to keep doing this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because we can't remove the stain off of our conscience. It's perpetual. Have you experienced that? You can't, you know, another way of saying it is you got to take yourself wherever you go. <laughs> you know, if I only, you know, I've, I've told so many people um, in marriage counseling that if I could only get a better spouse or if we could only move and get, if I could get a better job, if I could go to a better church, if I could this and that and this and that. And the problem is you got to take yourself wherever you go. <laughs> you can't get away from the uneasiness, the deep self-consciousness within your own, within your own soul. What is a conscience? Um, Maybe you thought of Jiminy Cricket, or is, am, I, am I, you know, Disney? Okay, look it up. It's classic Disney. Always let your conscience be your guide. In the Bible, the conscience has to do with your self-evaluation for how you fit in, the, in reality. Do you belong in reality? Or are you an imposter? It's your self-evaluation for how you fit um, and how fit you are for the presence of yourself or the presence of, of other people. You're evaluating how fit you are to be alive. 
to exist. So your conscience asks, are you fit for the presence of God? That's what your conscience is constantly evaluating and weighing out your actions and your motives and your thoughts and all of those things. It's basically asking the question, am I acceptable? If I was to be scrutinized, if I was to be audited by the, by the big guy in the sky, would I be found examined? Would I be found fit for the presence of reality? Would I belong? You have the sense that if people knew who you really are, if they were to examine you closely and see inside your mind and your motives, you'd be rejected. That's the idea of conscience. You can't account for something or for some things that you've done or feel or thought. In a profound sense, you have a profound awareness that you, you, you don't fit in. See, what we're being told here is, is some really deep, profound insight into the human experience, into who, into who you are individually. We're being told that moral efforts, religious observances, and good deeds will never get rid of the deepest problem you've got. The way the text says, the blood of bulls and goats will not get rid of your sin because it does not take the stain off your conscience. To put it in a more of a modern way, moral efforts, religious observances, and good deeds will never get rid of your, the deepest problem that you've got. Very deep down, we know that we're not worthy, that we don't measure up that we're not good enough, very deep down. Every person knows this. And according to Hebrews, this is not just a criticism of the Old Testament worship culture. This is not that. According to Hebrews, this is saying that we're all um, in the tent, so to speak. We're all a part of this system. Your life, and pay attention at this point. After you leave here today, pay attention to how your mind works. It's a constant weighing, is it not? You will find a program in the back of your mind, like a computer program. Even though you see a blank screen, you just see your desktop, there's a program running in the background called an operating system. That's what's going on in your head. There's a constant weighing. Do I fit in here? When you walk into a room, there's a constant scanning of what, these, what are these people's value systems and will I fit with them? And if I, do I stand up for what I believe or do I not? Do I kind of back off on that a little bit? We're constantly calibrating all the time. It's called your conscience. We're all in a tent made without hands. We're all trying to deal with the fact that our consciences are not at rest. We're not at rest. We know that if people could really look inside and could really see what we're like, they'd know how weak we are. They'd know how insecure we are. They'd know how wrong we are. They'd know how out of kilter we are, how proud we are. They'd know how scared we really are. We would never want people to see that, and therefore, we have an uneasiness to us. We mask it up with maybe some bravado or some other things called survival mechanisms, maybe a little fear, maybe a little flight, maybe a little fight. Whatever it is. So what do we do? We hide. Or we work. Or we're all doing what we can to cover up that sense that we're not what we ought to be. And we, and we do this, just like the text, we do this over and 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 over again. 
See how deep and profound this is. And if you're understanding this, you'll never look at life the same once you leave these doors, really. You won't be able to watch a TV show the same way you did before. You won't be able to listen to a, a, a radio progress, uh, podcast or a, an interview or watch the news or just when you're talking with people, you'll, you'll hear things coming out of their mouths that basically says over and over again, I'm trying to sacrifice more. I'm trying to be more. If only, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only. You won't be able to get away from it. It, it has a profound explanation on the human experience and you'll hear your own thoughts like a ticker tape going through and you'll go, oh my gosh, it's always on loop. If I was a better leader, if I gave more, if I showed up more, if I read more, if I could get promoted, if I could get another degree, if I could learn more, if I could read more, if I could, if I could, if I could, if I could. And the problem is it just doesn't stop. Just like the text, it's over and over and over and over again. And the elusive part is you think, when I get this, it will stop, but does it ever? If I read this, if I reach this goal, maybe then I could be set... We now have enough data in the culture to know that that's not true. We've now heard from enough people who have attained every goal we could possibly think of, and yet they're not at rest. They're in the tent made with hands. Okay. Um, in 2008, um, the film that really illustrated this to me was the film Seven Pounds with Will Smith. Do you remember that? Do anybody ever say that? When I, you know now that when I, you, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you know that when I mention a movie, I'm going to spoil it for you. So that's what's probably going to happen. Will Smith plays a, a man named Tim Thomas who, when he was carelessly sending a text when he was driving, veers across the lane and causes a pileup and kills seven people. And a few years later, in an, he, he's trying to atone for this sin. He feels horrible. He plans to save seven people's lives by donating his organs when he commits suicide. Do you see what he's doing there? He's in the, he's in the tent. He's in the tabernacle. If I can just balance it out. It's a really interesting film, but you can't. It just doesn't work. According to Hebrews, the problem is in chapter 9, verse 9, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 11 of chapter 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is the Bible's polemic about the human mind. But the writer gives us the one and only answer to our plight. We have a big problem here, an enormous problem, and he gives us the answer. Now remember, I said that blood symbolizes some pretty um, bad things, but in the ancient world, it also symbolized some very good, simultaneously, some good things also. Um, blood always symbolized life itself in the ancient world. Not just in the Bible, but the ancient Near East. There's lots of writings about this. Without blood, there is no life. In fact, life doesn't come into the world without the shedding of blood. Anybody that's been present for a baby being born understands this. And I don't mean watching it on the movies because it is much more bloody in, in, in reality than what anyone's comfortable putting on a screen. It's, it's a bloody affair to give, birth to, to give life to a kid. But most of all, if, if the blood represents life 
and it's voluntary, it shows that self-giving and self-sacrifice has some kind of a redemptive kind of power. We're all here, sitting in our chairs today, alive and breathing, because somebody, your parents, sacrificed, your mom, your mother, sacrificed her own blood to give you life. It's in the fabric of the cosmos. Um, and, we, and we know this. Again, going back to film, in any film that shows the sacrifice of the hero to let other people live, it's, got, it's immediately got our attention. Um, there's, a, there's a film on Netflix called Act of Valor. Has anybody heard of it? It's a, actually a, doc, a kind of a docudrama about a Navy SEALs, and they actually have actual Navy SEALs playing the stars. And in one point, this, uh, they're, they're trying to stop these terrorists, and a grenade comes in, and the team leader selflessly, sacrificially jumps on the grenade and takes it so that his team can live. And immediately, you're just, I, mean, I mean, it's just so gripping. Even though his blood wasn't shed for me in the movie. I can feel the power of it, that it was shed for my country. It was shed for me to be here and for our society to keep going on. And these are things that happen that we don't even know about. There are people right now, unappreciated people in our military services and police and all of those things that sacrifice all the time so that we can be sitting here right now. And not just sacrifice their time and their, but they, their actual blood, their life. That's what the Bible says is the meaningful part of all of history. Um, now, <clears throat> is this the same as ancient religions? Um, Agamemnon, you know, he was about to sail and wage war on Troy. You remember the, the, the ancient story? But because he angered Artemis, she wouldn't give him the winds to get his boat across to launch this assault Assault on Troy. So what does he do to appease her? He offers his daughter as a sacrifice to Artemis. Is, uh, is that the God of the Bible? Is that the, it, well, it kind of seems like it sometimes when you read all this stuff about blood. Is that the God of Christi Christianity that, that demands our blood? Well, no, not at all. Because the God of Christianity is the one that jumped on the grenade himself. He offered his own blood makes it very different look at verse 12 of chapter 9 he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption the book of hebrews as we've been looking at it for the past few months says that jesus christ is the creator that he's the very image and embodiment of the glory of God. He's God in the flesh, came to redeem the world, and he's the one that brought and offered his own blood rather than, in, rather than gaining power by shoving violence onto us like Rome had done. He showed his power by absorbing violence done to him. So Christianity even though it has a lot to do with blood, it's actually the opposite of ancient religions. Here you have not a God that demands blood, but a God that gives his own. And that's what makes it such a powerful, powerful, you will not find another religion like this. It makes it utterly unique. Now, this brings up a huge question. Why did it have to be like this? 
Why all the death? Why, the, why can't God just, you know, turn, turn and kind of say, well, mankind will be mankind and just forgive? Why couldn't he just forgive? You know, why couldn't, um, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, story of creation in Genesis 1, why couldn't it have been God created animals and the sea and God did this and then God said, let there be forgiveness and it was. Why couldn't that have just happened? Well, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great martyr of World War II and amazing theologian, he said to forgive, this is a direct quote, he said, to forgive is to suffer. I, I, and I, the reason I love it coming from Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not only was he a theologian that got it in the Bible, but he lived it. He experienced this. In order to bring, in other words, he's saying forgiveness and suffering are almost, and I say that on purpose because it's not exactly synonyms, but they are almost synonymous in the Bible. They are parked right alongside of each other. You cannot get one without the other. To, suffer, to forgive means to suffer. When someone really hurts you, and I mean really hurts you, um, you understand that to forgive them would be to suffer. And this is why I, I understand why, why people get, have so many problems with pastors that will just kind of flippantly say from the pulpit, hey, you know, if you're bitter about something, you just need to forgive them. As if there's no cost involved. As if it's just, just do, like you're, you're holding out on something that you could just easily do and this whole thing would be resolved if you just forgave. Anybody who's been really hurt, and I mean like really hurt, betrayed in some very deep way, knows that it is not that easy because there is no such thing as forgiveness without it deeply costing you something. It does not, it does not exist. When someone really hurts you, you have two options. You can either make the offender pay. A lot of us choose that option. But the problem with that is that you will, you will inevitably become just as evil as the person that you're trying to get payment from. You end up becoming just as bad as them in order to get them back. I mean, that's no good. Um, the, I'm throwing a lot of pop culture at you today. The, the show Lost was the, the character Sawyer. Remember how he got his name, Sawyer? He got his name. He named himself after the man that was responsible for destroying his family and destroying his life. He embodied him in order to get revenge to him. He became like him. And, and you know, Sawyer, if you watch the, the show Lost, he's just a guy that's being, being eaten alive by his, his own self. This idea of revenge is just completely consumed and rotted him away. He has no character. He's a lowly type of a guy um, because he's been consumed with revenge, with his story. Or you can forgive them, which will make you suffer because it means that you don't get the satisfaction of justice when you forgive. And that burns, doesn't it? You're not going after them anymore. You're not even hating them in your heart or your head anymore. You won't feel the satisfaction of retribution or that things have been made right. You don't get that. You're going to sit on it and not bring it up and let them go on thinking that they're right and that you're wrong. And when you do that, especially when you've been really hurt by somebody, um, I, I think marriages can, 
any marriage, in order for the relationship to go forward, you've got to forgive, which means I'm no longer going to try to prove to you that how wrong you are. And boy, oh, you can feel the fire right there, can't you? When you forgive, you will suffer. It's agony, it's thorns, it's fire in your gut, it's, na- well, it, it's a cross. It's death. It hurts because you just take it, which means you take on the suffering of the wrong committed. You just live with it. So forgiveness is a problem that shouldn't be taken lightly. I understand when people get offended, when people say, oh, just when Christianity says, oh, just forgive. You go, oh, gosh. And it's an even bigger problem. If it's a problem for you, it's an even bigger problem for God. Why he couldn't say, let there be forgiveness. He had to suffer for reconciliation between him and the world to happen. It had to happen that way. When a wrong happens, even to you, even with our underdeveloped understanding of justice, when a wrong happens to us, either we suffer or the person suffers, but somebody's got to suffer. How much more with God, whose understanding of justice is perfect, he sees us destroying one another. He sees us destroying creation. When he looks at our sin, there's only two things that can happen here when God looks at our sin. Either he can judge us and we suffer or he can forgive us and take on the suffering himself. And that's, what he, that's the gospel story. That's the gospel story. When you look at the cross, you see cosmically and infinitely in history something that every single human being, even the worst human being, knows in his or her heart is so painful. We, we relate to it. And it's real because forgiveness is always suffering. And that means that on the cross, Jesus Christ came, God came, God himself came, And he did not come to inflict more violence or evil onto the world like Rome was doing, its famous Pax Romana, you know, which was, um, you know, peace by force. Be at peace or we'll kill you until you die from it. You know, we we will stomp it out, especially through crucifixion if you are not a citizen. Jesus came and he said, I'm going to show power to restore by not inflicting more violence, but by absorbing all the violence this world can throw at me. And I'm not going to tell you I told you so, and I'm not going to, whether you get it or not, whether you think it's right or not, whether uh, you understand it or not. I love this quote by John Stott. Listen, he says, what other kind of God would you want? John Stott says, what other God could you believe in? I, I could never myself, this is the famous theologian John Stott who believes in God. He says, I could never myself believe in God at all if it were not for the cross. That's what made him come to. In a world of pain, how could you worship a God who is immune to it, he says. In a world of pain, how can we worship a God who is immune to that pain? He died for you. His blood was shed for you. And that brings us to our last point, how it changes us. How does the blood of Jesus change us? Um. For a large portion of the of time, uh, the church makes it a point not to talk about things like blood and sin and the cross. We've painted Jesus Christ basically into an example to follow. 
a teacher that will teach us how to do things better. We've made Jesus entire, almost entirely subjective by taking out any object, objectivity whatsoever. And that might conform your life to some kind of ethical principles, but it will not transform your life with the love of Jesus Christ on your, in your heart. And that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is staying, he's basically saying staying in the tent is not going to work for you. Becoming ethically better and doing more and more and more, it's not going to take the stain off of your heart. The only thing that will put your conscience, your self-conscience, self-knowledge at rest is to know that Jesus loved you and actually paid an objective price for you. That's the only way it works. The only thing that will, that will um, put you at peace is that your debt has been paid. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. He, it says, for by one sacrifice, in other words, it was a perfect sacrifice. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What an incredible sentence. For by one sacrifice, you have been made perfect and you're being made holy. In other words, your subjective choices and moral behaviors are being changed by an objective forensic declaration of who you are. You are forgiven, you're justified, and from that you are now in the process of being made holy. Do you understand? The two go together. You cannot put them apart. This verse is saying that in spite of the fact that you are flawed, you are flawed. Your sins have been put away in spite of that fact so that now you can stand in the presence of God anyway. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know that. Perfect and uh, 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 a justified failure. That's what we are. It's so powerful. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is you. That is me. Even though you're flawed, forensically, in other words, a legal declaration of who you are in Christ says that you have been you can have full assurance of faith because your hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience and your bodies have been washed pure. Notice it says your bodies have been washed pure. We tend to leave that out too. The body is there's actually an incredibly robust theological idea of body. Let me I'll just break it down into a sentence. Your body is the instrument by which you worship God, according to the Bible, and it's the instrument by which God engages the rest of the world. Therefore, it's holy and it's to be taken care of. Neither to be indulged or ignored. That's why the, Paul would say, therefore, in light of all of this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy to God. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 says sexual sin is so harmful and notice you'd you'd expect him to, to say to your soul or to your spirit or to your mind. He says to your bodies. It's a sin against your body. Your body is the instrument by which you worship God. It is now, speaking of tabernacle, it is the new temple tabernacle in which the spirit dwells your body is so important that's why how you 
use it, how you treat it, how you bless it, how much sleep you give it, how, what kind of fuel you're putting into it, what you're using it for is very important to the Bible. There's all sorts of things, but it flows out of an, those are all subjective things that you choose to do, but it flows out of an objective truth that Jesus died for you to sanctify your body. Amazing, isn't it? The point is that Jesus can't change you subjectively unless he has first solved the objective problem, and therein lies the significance of blood. The blood screams of something objective. To say, well, why can't God just forgive? That says your premise is that God's problem is a subjective one. That God subjectively is just choosing, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Why can't he just, you know, flip a switch? Can you just flip it? Flip the switch, the forgiveness switch. You're God for the love. Just forget. That would be thinking of God in subjective terms. Blood screams of payment, which screams of something objective. When the bill person calls you and says you haven't paid your bill in a few months, do they care about how you subjectively feel in that moment? No. Your account says objectively that you have not paid. We need an objective payment. And then after that, you can feel good all you want. The two go together. The two go together. They are mutually exclusive. They depend on one another. It goes together with the whole metaphor of the blood. And if it's not, it all falls apart. That's why we do communion every week. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. If you're guilty of acts leading to death this week, let me read that to you again. And by the way, in, I could use it that way and it would be biblically true, but textually, Acts leading to death here is talking about your religious acts. Your religious acts, your conscience acts, in the tent acts. That's the context of this chapter. My going to church, my religious observance, my moral behavior, all of those things, those are acts that lead to death if, it's, if your confidence are in them for self-salvation. So it applies to both. If you're here and you're guilty of acts leading to death. In other words, your, your conscience is just screaming at you. Or, if you've numbed your conscience because of all the good things you've done, and you've injected Novocaine into, into the conscience of your soul, and you feel like, well, actually, I'm doing pretty good because, because I'm in the tent. Hebrews would say that's a way that leads to death. This is the only thing that matters for us, what this represents. Let me read it again in light of that. How much more then, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The new covenant is better, isn't it? 